I, uh, I need to tell you a couple of true stories to make sure that we're ready to appreciate what we're about to story, what we're about to learn, okay? Okay, so before we study, let me tell you two true stories. First true story comes from classical Rome. When a general was, was victorious in a, in a great war, the Senate would sometimes grant that general a triumph. And, and when he was given, no, it wasn't a car. When he was given a triumph, yeah, pretty cool. Actually, they don't run very well. Anyway, the, um, when he was given a triumph, what that meant was it's not, it's not like a car. It's a, it's a political, social, religious event. Um, in your notes, you'll find a description of how the Roman triumph went down, and this is really important. Um, if you're here in the auditorium, open up your bulletin you got. You'll see it there in the middle. If you are, if you are online, your host should be telling you right now about how you can find them and, and get the notes there. If you'll, if you'll look in the notes, you'll see these six big deals uh, that were parts of a triumph ceremony. Now, now, it, it, every triumph was different, but there were 250 official triumphs leading up until the first century A.D. And from those 250, we find six things that were true in, in all of them, and so those six become very important. Here's the first one. The victor, that's that triumphant general, he put on a special purple-colored robe, actually a couple of robes, uh, up on the Capitoline Hill in Rome, and, uh, and he received a crown. He took this crown from this uh, statue, the, the statue of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, which roughly translated means the really big important god, Okay. <laughs> And, um, and then while he walked along, while he walked along, the people cried out, Triumpha! Triumpha! is what the people cried out. Now, that's actually not Latin. Uh, we think of it as triumph because we get our word triumph from that. But it's actually an old word that they stole from the people groups who lived in the Italian peninsula called Etruscans. That's your fancy word for today. Okay, we've never said Etruscans before, have we? Count of three, you get to say Etruscans. One, two, three. All right. The Etruscans had this word, triumpa. That's your second fancy word for the day. You get to say triumpa. One, two, three. Triumpa. Now, triumpa is really important. It didn't just mean victory. It didn't just mean triumph like we would think. What triumpha meant in Etruscan uh, religion was show us a manifestation of the greatest God. We would see God. All right. Third aspect of a Roman triumph, the, they had these inscriptions they would carry. Every time there were inscriptions that would talk about what the general had done, sometimes there were paintings. It was a really fancy one. They would have reenactments of the battles going on. Uh, three more issues. Uh, from the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus up on the Capitoline Hill, and this happened most of the time, this, uh, this commander imperator, he might magnanimously choose to free a prisoner. Somebody that was a prisoner of war from, from the battle, he would free them. And then he would, um, he would sacrifice a sacred offering, would give a sacred offering. And finally, the, the victor would take some of the crown, the laurel leaf crown that he was given, he would break it off, and he would put some of that in the sacred offering. Now, that was really important. He was showing that he had finished his work. What he was showing was, what that meant to them was that he had been given this commission by the Senate, and he had finished his commission. He had completed it, and now he was showing that he had done it. And then, this is significant, he sat down, and sitting down showed that he was in submission to the Senate. Okay, you got all that? Let's, let's go through it. Uh, the victor put on purple robes and a crown, right? The crowd cried, what, everybody? Triumpa. Very good. You already forgot how to say it, didn't you? Yeah. That's amazing. Goldfish. Um, so, on the count of three, let's say triumpha. One, two, three. Triumpha. And that asks to see, show us. When they're saying triumpha, show us God. That's what they're saying. Uh, inscriptions carried along. The commander might free a prisoner. He sacrificed a sacred offering, and then he sat down in willing submission to the Senate. All right. 
That's the first story. That's a Roman triumph. Here's the second story. It has to do with a young man named John Mark. Uh, he was a Jew from a wealthy Jerusalem family. They were also Roman citizens. Uh, this young man came to faith in Jesus Christ. He, he possibly even met Jesus before the Lord's crucifixion. Now, John, that's his Jewish name. Uh, John was later in his life mentored by the apostle Peter. In fact, they became very, very close. Uh, but John wrote a gospel using his Roman name, Marcus. We call it the gospel of what? What do you think? Mark, right. The gospel of Mark. Now, Mark goes out of his way in his gospel to explain Jesus to a late republic, early empire, Roman audience. I, I don't have time to detail all of them now, but if you will write me, feel free to write me. I'll send you a bunch of notes showing why we're convinced that, that Mark was pushing to a Roman audience. He was trying to address Romans. And nowhere is Mark more Roman than this. This is so cool. Mark shows the triumph of Jesus in Roman terms. Here's what he does. He takes the typical Roman triumph and he overlays the events of that week in Jerusalem to show how Jesus is truly the triumphant one. Um, Alan Georgia is a guy who teaches history at Fordham University. Um, I like his quote on this. By the way, wouldn't you like a professor who that's his profile pic? On, this is on the university side. He's got snacks behind his head. I, I never had a professor like that. He says, Mark employs the logic of the triumph to transform Jesus' status as a victim into an assertion of his authority. So that Jesus' execution by Roman agents emerges as a ritualized assertion of Jesus' Davidic kingship. Mark co-ops Roman spectacle, translating Roman's, Rome's dominant language, symbols, and practices to the purposes of the gospel. Of course, I know... I know hearing that, what you're asking in your mind, in your, uh, in your Roman general uh, imitation, you're asking, quid es medium, uh, or what does that mean? Thank you for asking. Uh, many of you have been studying Mark with me for months and months now, and even if you're new, you probably know some of the basic things that are spoken about this time of the year. We, we talk about Jesus being mocked and suffering and, and dying on a cross, but Mark wants us to do more. His book calls for us to take that list of the, of the Roman triumph elements and to overlay Jesus' Passion Week. The, the results are astonishing. Okay, what was the first point of the Roman triumph? Very first thing, uh, up the top of the Via Sacra, the victor put on purple robes and a crown, right? Right? Okay, with that in mind, Mark chapter 15. The soldiers led him away, Jesus, into the palace. It was called the Antonia Fortress. That is the governor's residence up on top of Mount Zion, highest spot there in Jerusalem. And called the whole company together. They dressed him in a what, everybody? Purple robe. Twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Wow. Second big Roman idea. The crowd cried, what, everybody? You did better that time. Triumphant. Uh, ancient call, Etruscan practice. Show us a manifestation of the greatest God. Thus, Mark chapter 15. They, the Roman soldiers, were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting on their knees, they were paying him homage. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. If we were writing this in Etruscan, we would probably translate it triumpa. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. In the city of Rome, they had the inscription, certain episodes of the war represented. On Good Friday, we read this, Mark chapter 15, 26. The inscription of the charge written against him was what, everybody? The king of the Jews. Mark pointedly refers to this practice. Remember the fourth part of the, tri of the triumph, the, the, the temple of Jupiter up on the Capitoline Hill, the commander might magnanimously free a prisoner, right? 
So we have this in Mark 15. He records this truth. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Fifth big idea in the Roman practice, the victor sacrificed a sacred offering, right? Well, in Mark, Jesus does so, but the offering is himself. Look, Mark chapter 14, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Chapter 15, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. He offers himself. The final aspect of a Roman triumph, the, uh, the victor tore off some of his laurel leaves, put them into the sacrifice. That was important, showing that he had completed his commission. He'd done what he was sent to do, and then he sat down in willing submission to the Senate, right? Okay, look at Mark chapter 15. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I'll explain a little bit why that shows that Jesus has finished his work. Uh, Mark 16, 19, so the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He, he finished his duty. He reconciled human beings to God, and then he sat down in submission to the Father. Isn't that amazing? Okay, put all that together. What we're celebrating this weekend is not that some poor Jewish kid got crucified. I mean, that, this is a victory. This is the ultimate in a triumph. Jesus is triumphant. He is the manifestation of God Almighty. He is the ultimate sacrifice for human sin. What we celebrate today is a triumph. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right. With that understood, now you heard my two stories. Let's dive into the text. Very last part of our study of Mark. Open your Bible to the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, second book in your New Testament. Go to chapter 15, uh, verse 33. Go to 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He's on the cross at this point. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthane, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? From Psalm 22. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour, that's how they spoke, I don't know if you know that. Um, <laughs> They fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Okay, stop there. This section summarizes how Jesus suffers and dies. By the way, that's the headline atop the right side of your notes, Jesus suffers and dies. Now, interestingly, Mark focuses on the spiritual anguish. Crucifixion is physically horrific. Mark doesn't hide that, but he chooses to focus on spiritual pain, which is even more severe. Jesus' suffering and death is revealed in five elements here. First, there's darkness for three hours, and that is frankly terrifying. As a kid growing up on the Great Plains of the United States, I learned very early in my life, when it turns really dark during the daytime, that means a storm has come, right? How many, how many of you have ever been through a tornado? You've seen those kind of clouds turning green and dark. It is, it is awesome, both, both in excitement and fear and wonder. It's an amazing thing. Uh, the second element, darkness is the first element showing Jesus Jesus' spiritual suffering. Uh, the second element is his prayer, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's a direct quote from Psalm 22. Um, it, it carries a lot of meaning. Let me, let me explain. No, take too long. Let me, let me sum up. 
Uh, let me just give you the highlights of Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, there is, there is genuine, David is praying with genuine affection for and affection with God, okay? David in Psalm 22 is experiencing grievous hurt. He is really, really wounded. And David foresees that there is going to be restoration. He, he sees there is going to be triumph. I will praise your name in the midst of the assembly with my brethren, says David. But, but along the way, between what he's feeling now and what he knows is going to come, David, David feels, it's not what he knows, but he feels separate from God relationally, okay? Jesus fulfills all that. That's why he quotes it. Look what he, he calls the Father, my God. That's affection, close affection. Jesus experiences unthinkable pain physically and especially spiritually. Jesus foresees restoration and triumph. He's already promised many, many times that he will restore himself. He will, he will triumph over this. And then the, the last part, now this is where David's path is just a type leading to Christ because Jesus does not appear to have ever been relationally distant from the Father or the Spirit. Triune God is one, ever and always. But, but Messiah Jesus is separated from the Father judicially. I love the way theologian John Grasmick addresses this. Um, I, I, throughout my study of Mark with you guys, I probably quoted John more than anyone. I really recommend his book. It's, it's quite good. Uh, he says, Jesus experiences abandonment by God the Father in a judicial, not a relational sense. Bearing the curse of sin and God's judgment on sin, he experienced the unfathomable horror of separation from God who cannot look on sin. Dying for sinners, he experienced separation from God. Mark focuses on the Lord's spiritual pain. Thus, he records the darkness, the Psalm 22 quote, and thirdly, Jesus' loud cry. Jesus' loud yell marks his death while he is judicially separated from God the Father. And the very fact that he could make a loud cry is really telling. Look, crucifixion usually took days. Some of you probably know this. How did a person who's being crucified, of what did they almost always die? What did they die of? Suffocation. Yeah, because, because the, the body, when you're being hung, it becomes very difficult after a time to establish negative pressure with your diaphragm. You can't breathe. So that's why they, um, if they wanted somebody to suffer longer, they would put a little, uh, a little spot on the, on the upright tree, uh, a little piece of wood so the person could, could stand on it because you could raise yourself up and thus get some negative pressure. Um, if you wanted them to pass more quickly, you would not allow them because they would wrap their feet around, or if the feet were hammered in, they would raise up on the nail, which had to be excruciating. Um, but anything to raise up and try and get negative pressure. If you want them to die more quickly, what would you do? So you may know what would they do? Yeah, break their legs. That way they can't, you can't raise up. And eventually the, the pleurisy, the, the lungs would become troubled with fluid. The, the diaphragm couldn't go down anymore, and the person would have very little breath. They would breathe very shallowly for hours and hours and hours and hours, and then they would go into a coma and, and eventually pass. Jesus gives a loud cry after only hanging there for a few hours. What's the implication? That he gave up his life willingly. There is still plenty of air left in his youngs. He can make a loud cry. So he chose this moment to die so he would die on Passover. I'd like you to read with me what Jesus said earlier in his ministry. He said this. You, um, you join me on the underlying text from John 10. I am, Jesus said, the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, 
and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Amen. That's what the loud cry emphasizes. Jesus has chosen this suffering. He chose this death. Then the temple curtain is torn top to bottom. It says was torn, passive tense on the verb. So that means this wasn't normal wear that led to tear. This was, a, this was an act of God. Now, there are two curtains, and it doesn't tell us which one is torn. I think it's very likely that it was the, the heavy inner cloth that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place. If that's the case, then the symbolism is very, very clear. This is a statement that Moses' sacrificial laws are completed. The law of Moses is fulfilled. There's never more any need for a holy of holies. There's never any need for anything to illustrate how God is going to someday reconcile humans and pay for sin. The way is open. The way has been open in direct relationship with God the Father through Jesus. In response to all that, the centurion testifies. That's our fifth element. Now, I don't know whether he means this in the real biblical sense or not. But the Gentile Roman does say, surely this man was the Son of God. He sees, this guy's seen a lot of death. He sees this fellow, loud cry, give up his life. And he says, surely this was the Son of God. Again, Dr. Grasmick is just spot on. He says the centurion's confession is the climax of Mark's revelation of Jesus' identity. This confession by a Gentile Roman officer contrasts with the mocking response of those mentioned earlier in chapter 15. This Gentile's confession also exemplifies the truth of the torn curtain, close quote. All people have direct access to God the Father because of Jesus, even Gentiles. Amen? Most of you know the story. Okay, Jesus suffers and dies. What happens next? Well, what happens next? Yeah, he's buried. Okay, yeah, that's right. All right, chapter 15, verse uh, what? 42. Verse 42, uh, if I can find it. Verse 42. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Somebody in the centurion, he asked him whether he'd already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. <clears throat> And after he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out in the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. Jesus is dead. He is not mostly dead, all right? He is absolutely expired. No centurion ever passed off a living person as dead. Listen, one thing centurions know is death. They see it all the time. They meet it out all the time. Pilate's surprised. We're not. The centurion's not because it's evident that Jesus surrendered his life voluntarily. It was not taken from him, and thus now he is totally dead. One of the best-selling books of the early 21st century was Rod Dreher's book, uh, Live Not by Lies. He took the title from a great speech by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, a speech back in the 70s that Solzhenitsyn delivered when he was being horribly oppressed by the evils of Soviet communism. Now, in this book, uh, the, the, the book subtitled A Manual for Christian Dissidents, um, Dreher talks about how Christians have got to live if they want to stand up to the authoritarian forces that are trying to conquer and control American life. This quote in the book, I'm going to read you a quote from the book, it made me think of Joseph of Arimathea. Here, here's the quote. 
What did it mean to live by lies? It meant, Solzhenitsyn writes, accepting without protest all the falsehoods and propaganda that the state compelled citizens to affirm. Everybody says they have no choice but to conform, says Solzhenitsyn, and to accept powerlessness. But that is the lie that gives all the other lies their malign force. The ordinary man may not be able to overturn the kingdom of lies, but he can at least say that he is not going to be its loyal subject. Close quote. Now, of course, you're right now thinking, I know, in your Soviet dissonant voice, why does this make you think of Joseph of Arimathea? It's a good question. Thank you for asking. Um, it made me think of Joseph because I am absolutely wowed by this man. I am astonished at how he stood up to authority. Think, think, put, put yourself in the context. Can you imagine anything in Jerusalem at this moment less popular than Jesus? The official party line is a lie, but it's powerful. The official party line is that this is a criminal seditionist, an enemy of the state. John stands up to that cancel culture, and he buries Jesus. That is incredibly brave. Theologian John Granger Cook explains one aspect of why this is such a big deal. He says, a survey of the statutes governing the burial of criminals and governing the prosecution of those accused of seditious activity indicates that provincial officials had a choice, when, like Pilate, Pilate's a provincial official, had a choice when confronted with the need to dispose of the bodies of the condemned. Greco-Roman texts show that in most cases, the bodies of the crucified were left to decompose in place, close quote. So Joseph is standing up to that convention. He is asking to bury the body of a state criminal. He is setting himself in the crosshairs of Rome as a possible seditionist. He, he's angering his own Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of which he's a member. That They were the ones who wanted Jesus killed. Joseph recognized the undeniable truth that Jesus is Messiah, and so he refused to live by the lies of culture or state. That is what is behind this burial of Jesus. And by the way, in our era, that same boldness is needed, not, not to bury Jesus, but to speak about his resurrection. It takes increasing boldness to do that. Speaking of which, his resurrection, let's read chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. The angel testifies that he is risen. Three brave women get up and they go to finish the burial rites. And while they are there, an angel testifies that Jesus is alive. He has true life, resurrection life that cannot end. He is, you want to say it again, don't you? All right. He is risen. It, it is appropriate and poetic that Mark closes the section with this word, this word, the Greek word, ekstasis, on the count of three, ekstasis, one, two, three, ekstasis. No, it is not a drug. It is a positive kind of shock. Um, I actually think it could be translated inspiration. I really do, because, um, because ekstasis is about the shocking positive, it's a very positive thing about the creative Life, the power of creative life washing over someone. That's what, that's what ecstasy is getting to. And it fits really nicely because 
Because Mark's entire account, his entire gospel is about the wonder of Jesus, the awesome wonder of this creative power of Jesus. And that changes us. David Wade of our uh, pulpit team sent me a really nice note about this. Um, He wrote me and said, Wayne, because of the resurrection, I have been crucified with Christ and raised to new life with him in the glory of God the Father. Therefore, I am free from the power of sin. I am no longer afraid of death and what men can do to me. I offer myself to God as an instrument of righteousness. I have abundant life in him with my eyes on the promise of resurrection of the body and eternal life in his presence in the new earth. Ecstasy indeed. All God's people said... There's a church in Scotland, um, Dundonald Church, that uh, made, a, made a video, made a little poem this Easter, and I think it, I think it really beautifully captures ecstasy, the, the, the shock, the ecstasy that Jesus rose from the dead. I want you to look and listen to this story. Okay, let's go. Freddie once sang that he wants to break free. That pretty much captures the mood, you'll agree. No hugs, haircuts, or holidays for over a year. The pubs and shops shut. No raucous cheer of fans at the game, of kids at school, stay home, mask on, two-meter rule. But the lockdowns, the measures, they're not without cause. They've been there because death just will not pause. It's assault on us all through this miserable virus. Death is the reason they've had to require us to not see our family or friends for so long. It's death that's the problem. That's what's gone wrong. So here, then, is the issue you see. When all this is over, when they say, you are free, when we rip off our masks and we hug once again, when we dance and we sing and we gather with friends, I can't wait. But hold on, because despite no restrictions, death hasn't gone. Virus or not, death wins the day, which kind of dampens our hip hip hooray. Unless, unless there was a way which we could be free from even the grip of death's tyranny. But how? You may ask, can we beat the Grim Reaper? Well, that is the wonderful message of Easter. Jesus, Son of God, came to earth as a man. The Word became flesh. It was always God's plan. And the reason he came was to die for our sin, to swap places with us so that we could begin the life we were made for, free from our shame. At the cross, Jesus took on himself all our blame, the perfect one coming to die in our place so that for all who trust him, they're given God's grace. But the message of Easter doesn't end there. Jesus died, he was buried, but no one could prepare for what happened next. He rose from the dead. Meaning death no longer has to fill us with dread because on that Easter Sunday, Jesus broke free. He rose from the grave so that if you believe that Jesus died in your place and then rose, then listen to this, here's how it goes. You too no longer have to fear death whenever it is that you take your last breath, because Jesus has beaten it. Here's your guarantee. Come to Jesus this Easter, believe, and be free. Ecstasis, joyful shock at the power of creative life. That is the right response to Jesus' resurrection. But... His disciples refused to believe the testimonies. I, I, I don't mean to laugh. It's not, well, it is funny, but it's just sad. All right, go, go, to, go to the next section, verse 9. By the way, some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with that verse, with verse 8. Um, I don't want to go into it now. Write me. We'll have tea sometime, and we'll talk about whether this belongs or not. But let's read verse 9. 
Early on the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. Yet when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. After this, he appeared in a different form to two of them, walking on their way into the country. And they went and reported the rest, who did not believe them either. Jesus now physically appears to Mary of Magdala, and yet the eleven remaining apostles would not believe her. They trust their own senses instead. Even though, even though their senses, like ours, are always warped, and even though Jesus' promises are straight, they didn't trust. Jesus then reveals himself in this dimension to two disciples. We know from other texts it was on this road to a place called Emmaus, but once again, they refused to accept it. Yes, I know, Jesus has predicted this. Yes, it is completely logical given his character, his promises, his fulfillment of the Old Testament, but they will not believe this awesome news. And that fits, by the way, with a theme that runs throughout the Gospel of Mark, the theme of disciple density. Um, they are regularly shown as young goofballs who just will not listen, to which we, of course, respond, aren't you glad we're not like that? (laughs) We always believe God's Word. I was writing with our pulpit team about this, and Cindy Sharp made a really great comment. She said, Wayne, I think we are the ones who are truly dense. We have over 2,000 years of testimony and Scripture about Christ, as well as the help of the Spirit, and yet we are so slow to believe His promises, close quote. I thought about that for a while, and I am forced to admit that, at least for me, Cindy's correct. I am often just as slow to believe God's truth, and I have even less excuse than the original disciples did. But in a delightful twist, those disciples are still used. They are sent to testify, and so are we. Let's close out Mark's book. Go to uh, verse 14. Later he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will get well. So the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the accompanying signs. Jesus appears to the eleven. He lays out the great commission and its import. This is true life. And then, and, then he, and then he sends that 11, listing uh, very specific things that will occur in their lifetimes. These were signs for them alone, signs that would substantiate Scripture. Jesus' commissioning here is a wonderful cosmic joke. I mean, think about it. These are losers who would not accept the reasonable truth. And he says, you're going to be the evangelists and apostles. When I read The Narnian, which was, is my all-time favorite biography of C.S. Lewis, I really thought it was quite good. Alan Jacobs' book, The Narnian. When I read that, I was struck by a parallel between Lewis and these guys. You see, Dr. Lewis spent years refusing to believe the plain truth that Jesus is alive, that he is Messiah whom he claimed to be. But when Jack finally broke down and trusted Christ, he became arguably the greatest witness for Jesus in the entire 20th century. The last half of Lewis's life was sent pointing out that Jesus is the victor. Thank you, poor things. Jesus is the victor. Don't you hate that? Those of you at home who don't know, the, the, somebody bumped the light button back there, and all our lights suddenly became a disco room. It was fantastic. 
Um, Jesus had a disco dance, a little different triumph. Um, Jesus ascends. Jesus is seated. One of Lewis's favorite themes he talked about all the time, he is the victor. And, and, and that triumph changes everything. Now, I, I don't know all of you. Some, some of you may be like C.S. Lewis before his conversion. You're just studying with me today because you want to check out Jesus and you want to see what this whole Easter thing's all about, but you don't yet trust him. I, I understand. For some time, that was me. Others of us are believers in Jesus. And for us, Mark 16 is a powerful reminder that we, we, like those first disciples, we have been given a commission. The triumphant, risen Christ, the victor, has given us a mission. And, and, and another wonderful cosmic truth, goofballs like us are asked to live it out. And we try to capture that in this church's mission statement. If you would, read it with me, please. This is the mission of this church. I think it summarizes what Christians are to be and to be about. Who are we, everyone? We are a redeemed community. What do we do? We do the Great Commission. How, how is that done? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? What's our purpose? For the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I praise you. Hallelujah for ecstasis. I praise you for the amazing grace that Christ is risen. And I pray for all those who are, who are like me before that summer at camp, who were like C.S. Lewis all those years, kicking against the goads, trying very hard to find any reason not to trust the logical conclusion. Friend, listen, Jesus, it, it's demonstrable. He is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the triumphant one. Triumphant. He is the manifestation of God. book of Colossians talks about that. You can read it. And anyone who believes in him has everlasting life because Jesus willingly died on that cross for you because he loves you and me. And he rose from the grave so that if we trust him, we have everlasting life. Je Jesus is risen. That is the amazing grace that changes everything. All God's people said, amen. amen.